Today on The Good Writing Podcast, we're talking about worldview and the bell jar. Specifically, we're going to look at the fig tree metaphor and some craft techniques that you can use to indicate when your point of view character's worldview is incomplete or not like necessarily true. It is a longer episode than usual because The Bell Jar is a phenomenal book and we get pretty into the weeds. We just kind of shut up about it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Cool beans. Hi, Emily. Ben. <laughs> That's me. Audience. I'm Ben. Audience, <laughs> and I'm here Emily. too. <laughs> so glad to see you. Or, you know, what? whatever the equivalent of seeing something is that if you um, are only talking to it and it can't respond to you. A oh, unidirectional. God, okay. I'm so glad to enter your earlobes, your ear canals again, dear listener. I've climbed up over your earlobes and straight on into that that ear canal, and I'm tapping lightly on your eardrum in order to tell your brain how to interpret language. Um. And also to tell your brain, thanks for listening, and welcome back to the Good Writing Podcast. We're two yeah. friends from the MFA program. Uh... Give each other homework accidentally. Sorry I told you to read a whole book this week, Ben. No, it's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay that you told me to read this whole book, even though I haven't finished it yet. I've read like 70 pages of 180 uh, because I fucking love it. It's uh, it's fantastic. So Don't want to skim it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. You want to you wanna, you wanna swim in this one. Sink in yeah. it. Yeah. Do, do we want to say what the book is? I, I think we do. I think we okay. do want to say what the book yeah, is. Please. This is your week, so I, I, I want to give hand the reins to you. Uh, beep, beep, it's Emily in the driver's seat with The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Hell yeah. Please welcome <gasps> to the stage. <laughs> oh, Ben, we read The Bell Jar this week. Yeah. We're going to talk about the fig tree metaphor, everybody. All y'all girls on Tumblr know what I'm talking about with the fig tree metaphor. <laughs> we all see that fig tree. It's a good, it's a good metaphor. It's a really solid metaphor. Ben, it's a hell of a metaphor. Oof. And I think it, I think it ruined my brain for a few years. But we're gonna come back to this first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's reading and writing, Ben? Reading and writing is good. I just uh, in general, I recommend it. Um, <laughs> good for your brain. Good for your soul. Teach your children to read and write, and then I just hang up the call. Um, yeah. Literacy brought to you by the Good Writing Podcast with Ben King and Emily D. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's it's going well. It, it's going well. I, I've gotten to, you know. Do a little bit more work on tuning up that short story uh, that we did for what our workshop met. Um, I, I've nice. gotten that, and I'm going to begin sending it off. That that is a thing that's going to start happening probably this week, and we can talk yeah. about that next week and see how that uh, painful process goes. Honestly, <laughs> can next week just be our like talk about submitting to Lit Mag's week? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I wanna I wanna tune in live while you're. Dealing with submitting to lit bags. <laughs> okay, hell yeah, yeah. All right, then, then that, that's what we'll do then. That, that'll be awesome. Um, but yeah, so I've tuned that up. You know, we're worked a not very much on the thesis. Still like troubling way through that, but like just mainly doing tuning work on that short story, and and that feels nice to do. I'm I'm very slow these days, but slow is better than not moving at all. Um, I second that, sir. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's a good thing. And reading, as you just, as we just mentioned, has been very good because I've been <laughs> reading the Bell Jar, and it's been awesome. We really just both dropped what we were doing to to pick back up the Bell Jar. Yeah. When I <laughs> I told you at the end of last week's episode, like after we finished recording, I was like, yeah, I want to do this one metaphor in the Bell Jar, and you were like, oh, I've been meaning to read that. I will read the whole thing, and then I was like. Oh no, now I also have to read the whole thing in a week. <laughs> uh, did, did you actually do it? Have you finished it? Yeah, I finished it. Like, oh, good t- like you know, we started, we started, I, we, we started this podcast recording session three minutes late. It's because I finished it <laughs> at like 6.01 PM today. Nice. Nice. Oh, beautiful. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked to talk about it, but how is reading and writing going for you? Oh, Ben, it's good. It's good. I did what I always did with writing, with a writing deadline. So mm-hmm. I submitted to that contest that I mentioned that I wanted to submit to. I spent Dope. 20 human American dollars on it. Dope. Um, and I will hear back. F- and mm-hmm. I will hear back from them in approximately four business years. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, when an unpaid teenager uh, has read over your story <laughs> and is inevitably deeply impressed by it. And puts it on to the next round to where an actual adult gets to read it. Um, yeah. I mean, this magazine is very cool. And yeah. But um, mm, mm, the wait time on LitMax. But I did what I always do with big deadlines, which is I um, maniacally fiddle with it um, and fiddle with it and fiddle with it up until like the very last moment, finally submit it. And then I'm just like, and I, I completed writing. I did writing, and then I just yeah. wander around like proud of myself for like several days. Exactly, you did it. You're the you're the one. <laughs> like... And now I'm a writer. <laughs> you can't say I'm not. I think a lot of people, like our professors in the MFA program, definitely mentioned that like most their theory on why people stop writing after after the end of the MFA is that there aren't deadlines anymore. I think deadlines are very counterintuitive for me because I just, like, if I finish a deadline, I'm like, I got an A on the semester, and now it's going to break. <laughs> that means I don't have to anymore. I could stop. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on academic break. <laughs> yeah. No, I I get it. Like, And I, I, I guess I get where they're coming from on that, is that the deadline does, like, you know, there's pressure like there's just like sudden social pressure of how if nothing else how embarrassing it would be if you didn't turn anything in yes. um and it's it's not embarrassing if you don't submit to the lit, lit mag in fact sometimes your life feels better because you're not doing it like yeah <laughs> oh my god i actually have if i pull up my submittable account right now i have before this contest i didn't realize I had been very bad, and I hadn't really submitted to LitMax mm. at all for a long time. Yeah, um, and I discovered I, <laughs> in my submittable, I have some submission that's been there for like ten months. I'm not actually, I'm actually not joking right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some of them are just pending for all time, right? Sometimes they just leave you in an eternal hell or purgatory, I guess, and they just don't, and you don't know what happened. Like, did they? Clearly, they didn't want it, but did they ever read it? <laughs> this is some businesses should not be run by english majors like, yeah like, i don't think yeah. we're a demographic fit for not being supervised by a business major 
Yeah, it's true. It well because it's just like who? It's just a person with thick glasses and frizzy hair is attempting to run an organization like ninety percent of the time, and th- their brain is elsewhere. Like, and I don't blame them for it because I'm that person without the thick. Yeah, glasses mine too. Yeah. I'm not yeah. mad. Like, yeah, well, I, am, I am sitting in limbo, but I, I can't not relate. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so writing was good. I, I made the contest, and then I've been walking around proud of myself for several days and not writing any more since. <laughs> hey, you, you should be proud of yourself. And it's it's good to take breaks and to walk away and to come back, and it's, yeah, that's, that's healthy. Yeah, so, hmm. it's very much my philosophy. Um, do we have any... Oh, we have not... We don't have any listener mail to submit to the show, no. so just... I want to add it to the top of the show today. Yeah. Uh, dear friend, um, we actually want to create a listener mail segment. Um, yeah. So if you could email us at goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com, we would love to either read it or if you send us a recording, we might even air it. Um, yeah. yeah. And it could be about anything. Something that we talked about on the show, a, a different book you'd think us, we'd like, or just a, a, something about writing in general that you've been thinking about or want to discuss. We'd love to, we'd love to hear it. So. Yeah. yeah I think, you know... People outside of workshops and outside of MFAs are like, oh, I can't really talk writing, but we're like, we actively want to do that. Put put yourself out there, please. Goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, please, <laughs> please, goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to see. I would love to get email that wasn't spam to, to that email address. So It would please. be really exciting if something other than thank you for submitting your podcast came through to that email address. <laughs> Great, more automated mail from Podbean. <laughs> oh, God, but yeah, yeah. Please, uh, we we would love to have that. But yeah, so I, that's meeting right for me. Ready for today's marquee topic? Are you ready to I'm, do I'm this? I'm ready to get in on this because this is this was been really fun for me. I really enjoyed doing this. Like yeah, so <laughs> ah, okay, Ben. I told you I want to do the fig tree metaphor in the bell jar, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna talk about worldview, and then I I said nothing else, and yes. and then you just read like half of this extremely dense hard book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, first impressions of the bell jar, Ben. Uh, first impressions of the bell jar. This book is way funnier than anyone said it was ever. Yes, they yes. only ever talk about it being depressing. Depressing, but it's hilarious. Also, it's sad. Yeah, but it's you know, like many of the sad people I've known, it turns out Sylvia Plath also has a great sense of humor because that those two things seem to go hand in hand a lot of the time. Like, they yeah, do seem to be related responses to yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So very funny. Uh, she, it, it's clear that she's a poet, like because every sentence is a goddamn work of art. And mm-hmm. it, it, I, I was reading this and I had the thought, I'm, sh- I sure am glad that poets write poetry and not novels most of the time, or else we'd all, the rest of us would be fucking out of work. Like Ben, you know. uh, Ben. There aren't jobs in writing to start with. So we're already out of work, as it were. Yeah. And if more of these poets came for the all, for the one in every two million jobs, yeah, were. exactly. But no, that it just no, no. If if poets were if the poets were interested more into writing prose, none of the people I know who focus in prose, we'd all be on the outskirts, man. It, it's the, it's night and day the attention she pays to just every single word that she's choosing. You know. Yeah everything's an image every time and i love that like it's fantastic so yeah yeah. how deep did you get into this book before you were like i fucking love this book 
Um, I think it, basically the first chapter, like, I was like, oh, I'm in. I'm, I'm just into how she writes. Like, uh, I'm into the, like, the style of her sentences. I love her rhythm. Like, she's all, she's got me from, from pretty much the get-go. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say that my edition had one of the worst intros I'd ever read to a book. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> Actually, this is such a worthy topic. What was your intro? Because I want to talk about mine, too. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have the 50th anniversary edition uh, from Modern Classics. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it was an intro by a publisher who spent the entire time basically talking about how without him Sylvia Plath would have never been published, and, and the Bell Jar would have. Ne- and it's just like, how are you making this about yourself, dude? How the fuck are you doing this right now? That's insane. <laughs> like, Wait, is it Francis McCullough? Oh, is it Fran? Th- that I, that sounds right. Uh, let me see. Let me go to my forward. Uh, yes, this is Francis McCullough's uh, terrible intro. Yeah, <laughs> I have the twenty fifth anniversary edition, also <laughs> with an intro written by Francis McCullough. <laughs> oh man, does he also just talk about how without him the bell jar wouldn't exist? Um... No, he talked a little bit about how, like, his publisher, originally these two old ladies were the readers to decide mm-hmm. if it would get published or not, and they hated it. Mm-hmm. And even after it, like, got really big in London and everyone universally was like, this is brilliant and very smart, the old ladies were still like, I still hate it. It's not yeah. getting published. Over yeah. my dead body. <laughs> he did mention that as well. And also about how it wasn't <laughs> supposed to be um, published in America during uh, her lifetime, during Plath's lifetime. Uh, that was a... <laughs> big point of contention it seemed yeah yeah which is by the way a really fascinating um how much mm-hmm. copyright law can impact <laughs> art yeah but, yeah very much so and then there so, was that story about how another guy was going to publish it yes and he said no and the other guy stopped and i was like well oh, i didn't expect that to be what happened at all like uh, yes okay let me try to summarize this so I think in 1963, Sylvia Plath and her husband, who she had a bad relationship with, were mm-hmm. living in London. And this was this is a very autobiographical novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Sylvia Plath's mom understandably fucking hates this novel, or hated mm-hmm. this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so she published it in London under a pseudonym, and it was extremely popular there. It mm-hmm. had previously been rejected from this American publisher. Um but then due to a weird copyright loophole that, by the way, has since been closed. This isn't a thing anymore. At the time, if something was published abroad and then wasn't published in the U.S. within six months, nobody owns a copyright and you can make it for free somehow? Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't sound right. Yeah. But, so it was published in 1963. Uh, Sylvia Plath died. The rights went to her husband ted hughes who was a poet i guess or whatever mm-hmm. um and then the husband like obviously talked with sylvia plath's mom who like does not want this book to be published um mm-hmm. and so he agreed to not let it get published until the mom after her lifetime until after mm-hmm. she had died and then yeah this other publisher was like well there's free copyright and was gonna <laughs> publish it and then <laughs> and so they just scrambled and like negotiated the original publisher like negotiated with the mom to like yeah. push it out in the u.s anyway yeah uh, yeah inter- fa- really interesting how like i guess legal rights to art impacts the art 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what, how much of a role that plays in just whether or not something even sees the light of day. Like, yeah. and, you know, we, we see that with other stuff, too, with, like, translation rights. That also becomes a big issue, I feel like. The, there's a great French writer, um, Pierre Goyata, whose works are, his early works are indefinitely, like, never going to be published in English again for the most part because their original publisher got in a bunch of legal trouble. So they're (laughs) all just in eternal limbo, these translated versions of these books. Like, yeah. That's fascinating. How long ago was that? It's really weird, yeah. Uh, That was in the 90s, I think, was when his books were getting translated, like, or at least his earlier ones were. Um, uh, His later stuff is all just published by MIT and is just eternally in print. Like, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's weird, like so, but yeah, that that has such a big impact that no artist is ready for because no artist knows any of those rules. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like this is almost a non sequitur, but Rebecca Mackay, the novelist who mm-hmm. did um, the Great Believers, mm-hmm. she has a really great essay about like how she found out the hard way how you if you're going to like reprint song lyrics in a short story uh, you have to only use like barely any of it because there's so few words in a song mm-hmm, that you're mm-hmm. quickly using like more than 25 percent or whatever the legal thing is anyway so her takeaway was like only ever quote the chorus and all yeah. <laughs> like ever like <laughs> you will soon be sued <laughs> the universal music group will come for your ass yeah no yes they i I'm going to find this. I'll put it in the show show notes. And mm-hmm. um, I think she got sued over a short story that like, no, like it was in a literary magazine. Not very many people had seen it. It's not like she was meaningfully stealing from, you know, the. I think it was a, the music man was also the song being quoted. So it wasn't, it was like a very random older yeah. thing. And she, yeah. I'll put this in the show notes. It was an interesting read for for anyone like afraid of copyright infringement. This will strike further fear into your heart. <laughs> <laughs> this will confirm your anxieties and deepen them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then give you a practical takeaway of just like don't fucking quote yes, a song in a short it. story. Don't do it. You you yeah. you cannot afford the rights to that. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't don't even say the Beatles if you're gonna do it. Spell it with two E's, not the E A. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, um, but so that yeah, th- those are my impressions on this book. Like, is that it's a uh, fucking fantastic for you know. I-, I also feel silly saying that also because it's like it's a classic. Like this is one one of the like canonical works. Like very much what? so. It, like speaking of it and being a classic, like what mm-hmm. had you heard about it? What is its reputation that you know uh, of? Well, uh, the reputation of the bell jar, I think, is the reputation of Sylvia Plath, right? It is that it was written by this woman who was cons- who had a difficult life, uh, was struggling with mental health issues, and ultimately committed suicide. Like, that's the story of the bell jar. Like, you don't really hear about the book that much, just that there's this tragedy surrounding it, right? Like, at least that's my interpretation. That's what I kind knew, yeah. Kind of more the reputation of the author and the myth-making yeah. of the author. And it was yeah. her... She had... A, a few books of poetry, but this was the only novel that was published. Yeah. And, and they were, like, widely read books of poetry, too, apparently. Like, so Ariel, like, yeah, and the Colossus were, like, really big at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is cool, like, because that never happens, so. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Um, yes. 
had you heard that this is like the the female equivalent of The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger? I, like the, I had, mm-hmm. the female coming of age story. Mm-hmm. I, I'd only encountered that in the introduction. I'd never heard that comparison before. Like, yeah, because it's never taught in school. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, like yeah. I read, I had Catcher in the Rye assigned to me junior yeah. year of high school, you know? Yeah, same, um, yeah. Yeah, but she's, so, so the protagonist in this, she's 19, um, and it is, like, at least the intro to this, and it's not the only time that this comparison is made, is that it's like the literary coming of age story for teenage girls instead okay. of teenage boys which is catcher in the right which yeah. um i've i think by the way just a bit of a non-sequitur the myth of the catcher of the right like the reputation of the catcher of the right does not nearly account enough for the number of murders <laughs> committed <laughs> in the name of the catcher of the right lots of sad shit in the bell jar no murders publicly yeah, committed no murders. in the name of the bell jar <laughs> yeah yeah but, I mean, also, Catcher in the Rye, like, I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, boring. Boring. <laughs> Bad book. Uninteresting character. Don't like it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, like, didn't love it junior year of high school. Didn't bother rereading it. But because this intro mm-hmm. made the comparison to the Catcher in the Rye, I, like, mm-hmm. uh, we looked up the Wikipedia page and, like, half the wikipedia page is about the various murders committed in the name of the catcher in the riots famously john lennon and then i didn't know there was more than that like yeah really yeah a number of less famous murders and murder attempts don't forget the murder attempts why why did that book make people want to kill people i I don't i'm not really clear on it either because that book's just about like a 17 year old boy who acts out gets expelled yeah feels protective has a lot of like impulses but doesn't really act upon any yeah. of the big ideas like going out and living in a cabin or whatever. Yeah. And then what how's it end? Like his parents pick him up or something? Yeah, pretty much. He he imagines a big cornfield where he protects people, but and like that's the moment that people like I know that's the moment that the John Lennon guy cited. Um right? Like, How is murdering someone protecting them from a cornfield? Men are dumb. Like, that's the answer to this question. Men are stupid and will really take any impulse to act on their violent impulses. Like, you know. You, you know what will give you that impression that men are dumb and mm-hmm. want to be violent is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the first half of The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is, yeah. oh, upsetting. Upset. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is upsetting. The first yeah. half is um, more kind of like, everyday upsetting (laughs) yeah yeah it's just like the standard shittiness i haven't gotten into like the deep like she hasn't mentioned the bell jar yet you know which i know is like used as a metaphor for falling into depression right like yeah um, that's the big one Uh, what is like what's the last big event that you remember happening Uh, let's see she was just hanging out with constantine and like fell asleep on his bed and she like wanted to be with him but she he like wasn't interested in her like that that was the last big thing that happened like i i just got to the eighth chapter um how would you feel about if i just gave you a lot of spoilers right now because that's totally fine let's go for it like for the sake of the discussion let's go yeah so first half of this book uh wait can you no let me do it fast um first half of this book Mm -hmm. Esther Greenwood is the main character. She's a 19-year-old girl. She grew up relatively poor. Um, she's gotten... She's like a scholarship kid, and her whole sense of identity is based in 
like succeeding at school and getting winning the prizes blah 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 um she is not doing well emotionally or mentally um from the beginning of the book you can tell this what i find really disturbing about the bell jar having just reread it in the past few days so it it starts with esther and a bunch of these other girls have one like they're working for, for a magazine for a month in new york city and it's all very trendy very fancy they're getting a ton of free fancy stuff and caviar and all this stuff um then immediately after she leaves fancy new york she goes spoiler ben she goes to um her mom live with her mom in the suburbs she immediately falls into a massive depressive episode and then more than half the book is just her actively trying to kill herself or living in an asylum. Um, okay, yeah. So what I find really disturbing about this rereading this book now as an adult with a little bit more experience than the first time when I read it when I was like somewhere between high school and college, um, all of the unwellness is present. Like reading this book, if if you didn't have a spoiler, if you lived in a it somehow lived somewhere where you didn't have this the plot of this this book spoiled for you um you'd read the first half of this like yeah this is a pretty accurate description of of gender dynamics in the late 50s early 60s um (laughs) that's just and to to now also i would say like the toxicity she experiences doesn't feel uncommon to how women are treated yeah i'm like uh... yeah so like to watch I think it's really disturbing for a lot of readers to like so identify with how she is describing social pressures and these gender relations mm-hmm. in the everyday life, and then to watch her fall into a massive depressive episode and mania episode, I think, that, mm-hmm. that is not at all relatable, mm-hmm. is really interesting. And it's, even today, like because as you said, a lot of the date rape that happens by the way there's date rape that that's about to or attempted date rape that's going to happen um those things happen today you know with a different kind of social pressure behind them a different kind of motivation um but like yeah the relatability of that everyday like terror that she's living in is makes makes the fall into the descent into the, the terrible depressive episode really disturbing yeah um Okay, so my history with the bell jar. Mm-hmm. I read the bell jar when many sad teenage girls read the bell jar, which is just before college. Um, mm-hmm. So the reason we're reading, we're talking about the bell jar today is because my memory of the famous metaphor in the bell jar was totally different than what it was I discovered rereading it the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a phenomenal metaphor in the bell jar that in the context of the book works <laughs> first of all it's just fuck it's gorgeous and we're gonna read the whole thing multiple times mm-hmm. um but in the context of the book like it is clear that uh esther's belief in this metaphor is imperfect mm-hmm. and it's Sylvia Plath is not presenting this metaphor as accurate necessarily, but mm-hmm. it's been decontextualized and made viral in so many ways that like, I think a lot of people forget that Esther herself thinks the metaphor is wrong. Um, mm. 
Anyway, so I want to come back to the audience like reception of this metaphor and just talk about how good this metaphor is on its own and also in context of presenting a character's worldview and letting the audience, letting the reader, if they choose to, if they read the entire book rather than just reading a viral misplaced quote, letting the audience like um, be able to understand that that's how she feels in this moment, but it may not, it isn't necessarily the truth. (laughs) Like it's, it is a worldview, but it is not the truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It, it, It doesn't resonate necessarily beyond is this like deep uncovering uh, of humanity rather as just like an uncovering of this person like yeah exactly it's yeah. it's specific to this character it is not the author saying this is what life is like right it is mm-hmm. the author saying this is what this character feels life is life in this time right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um brief context uh before this she was like reading something where a, a fig tree was used in a short story that she read for work um so she, fig trees she read a story with that earlier, so fig trees are top of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, ben, would you read the entire thing? Yeah. All right, uh, starting with I Saw My Life. Yeah. We'll go back a little further. Okay. Um, so, I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions, and another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion, and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. World-class metaphor. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, world-class metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like, just absolutely just crystallizing a moment, Right? like Mm -hmm. just completely you you know it's like you were saying it it is just a diamond of seeing into that character's brain in that exact second like Mm -hmm. it's so it's so well done and and just and just gorgeously written too like just just Mm -hmm. the way that those sentences move like the 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 physics of that you know from the tip of every branch like a fat purple fig uh like that that just the way those words land on each other just gorgeous Mm -hmm. like yeah and while it may not make sense to contextualize from the book for those anyone listening who hasn't read it before the sentence it starts one fig was a husband and blah 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 another fig was a poet and another fig was a brilliant professor and another was this and another was that the construction of that sentence is gorgeous it is one sentence that's like almost paragraph length one fig mm-hmm. is this and another and one fig and another and the the repetition is just beautiful and and it is like any long repetitive sentence like that is kind of tedious but that's recreating her feeling considering all of these futures like it's mm-hmm. tedious mm-hmm. to think about all of these different options i can't even yeah. conceptualize all of them at the same time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
brilliant grammar. It's hypnotized by the image, like by the the sheer weight of all of it standing above her, and like and using the tree as like the base for that. Like a tree is an overused metaphor in many ways, but this is totally fresh because it's like it, it positions her physically at the bottom of something that she can't see the top of that reaches out past her grasp, like just literally. Like mm-hmm. the, the, that's just you know it, it's such a well such a well-grounded easy to grasp thing and that's what make that gives it that like just depth of beauty right there because then because we're given that position where we're instantly familiar with it then she can just go wherever she wants because we we can already see it like you mm-hmm. know it, it's yeah like it's mm-hmm. not burdened by itself yeah i also think that the subject matter the feeling that it's observing mm-hmm. is so true to being mm-hmm. you know a high achieving kid who doesn't know what to commit like this subject matter is just so so poignant i'm gonna reread the last paragraph Mm -hmm. please i saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree starving to death just because i couldn't make up my mind which of the figs i would choose i wanted each and every one of them but choosing one meant losing all the rest and as i sat there unable to decide the figs began to wrinkle and go black and one by one they plopped to the ground at my feet like that's such a that was that felt when i first read this like such an accurate fear mm-hmm. right like um this particular character like maybe i could be an olympic lady crew champion you know mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. professional athletes you do do that young or you don't do that at all right yeah um yeah. some of these do have windows right times <laughs> to, yeah exactly there are there are timers or, or amounts of time that need to be devoted to them in order to get there yeah exactly like, yeah and this like feeling of like being a late teenager or early 20s and and not knowing which way to commit to and feeling like if you don't make a decision you won't get to do any of them that's mm-hmm. such a beautiful observation just such a beautiful observation a phenomenal yeah metaphor that i as an adult strongly fucking disagree with yeah okay yeah, same yeah like it's like, like but it's not fucking true that's what a teenager thinks like exactly yeah. exactly you know? and ben i i when i read this at 19 at 18 or 19 or whatever it was i was like this is the truth but yeah. as an adult i'm like this is the stupidest thing i ever thought this is on the list of stupidest mm. things i've ever thought and i've thought some stupid stuff yeah <laughs> that it's like no it, like because it also reflects that when you're a kid you don't realize that it's like, no, it's always the present. It's always going to be today, no matter what. And it's going to be today for the rest of your goddamn life. It doesn't stop being today. You don't lose track of that present moment. It's always there, even though it feels so endemic. And so you need to be somewhere so immediately when you're that age. Like, so, so of course you're afraid. You're like, yeah. Yeah, you're so afraid of the future not being acceptable right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so afraid of the future not being acceptable that you think you have to be olympic level in order to keep lady crew at all right yeah yeah. girl you don't have to go to the olympics to enjoy crew like we got row machines at the gym now like there are options you know to do this in a non-olympic level (laughs) you don't have to be literally the new york fanciest editor at the fanciest magazine In order to keep, like, pursuing your interest in reading and editing. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have to go pro in order mm-hmm. to continue to pursue something. Yeah. You, you, there, things can just be yours, and that's okay. And I don't think kids realize that a lot of the time. That's something that, that that's a struggle, like, because, because at that age, 
you don't have anything that's yours yet when you're 19. Mm. Like, you, you don't have that moment where you realize that it's like, oh, I'm just okay at this and I'm enjoying this and I don't need it to be anything else yet because you just haven't gotten... You haven't gotten that much experience with something to realize that you just it can just be yours. Like yeah. yeah. It's good to have hobbies. It doesn't have to be your identity. And I, yeah. I think in retrospect, like this um sentence that I love, which the with the beautiful construction about one fig and another fig and another fig, like mm-hmm. each of the fig options, they're not just like activities, they are yeah. who she is, right? Yeah. She's yeah. she's looking to grasp onto a future identity, a future sense of self mm-hmm. that would be based mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. something that she does. But she's not looking at like one branch was, huh, maybe I could get good at crochet, you know? Like, they're, <laughs> they're whole senses of selves that are exclusive of the other options, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just, as an adult, so vehemently disagree with this worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's so, it's so funny to, like, reflect it against the, like, story that she read earlier, because it was a story about people going out and harvesting figs. multiple figs were being collected in that story like oh my god you're right like an abundance like you they they were like the point of the story was not you can only get one of these things or the fig tree is dying no the story was about like two lovers being entwined with each other and they just happened to be collecting figs but the figs in that scenario were they had access to them yeah there were plenty Yes, like <laughs> you, you have you you have a basket, like you know, is yeah. what the character doesn't realize, like yeah. yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's maybe this is so seductive of like a worldview for a teenager. Maybe this is for all teenagers. I do think it's really relevant that the character and Sylvia Plath, obviously, but Esther, the character, is a writer, right? She mm-hmm, wants to mm-hmm. be a, at at various points. She wants to be a poet, and she spends time. Yeah. She spends part of the novel writing a novel, right? Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's I, I, I do think it's worth talking about like a little detour on writing careers and how like mm-hmm. you don't have to launch it at 19 to ever write again, you know? Like, yeah. It, I think like most, like some of the best, like how, how people keep writing stories are mm-hmm. like... A story of a guy who, like, after, like, undergrad, he was supposedly this great, um, everybody in undergrad thought he was going to be the next best writer ever. Mm-hmm. And he got a job as a baker so that he would have writing brain left at the end of the day. It it doesn't have to be your whole identity, you know? You yeah. don't have to launch yeah. out as the as a New York New Yorker magazine yeah. published short story writer on day two, you know? yeah. Exactly, because like like those lofty like achievements, like at the end of the day, also don't really mean anything. Because like, who remember that cat lady story? Yes. What was the name of the person that wrote that? M. Mer. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, and that person got like a two million dollar book deal after they wrote that story. Like, and they're doing well, presumably, but, like, we remember that a person wrote a story that was called The Cat Lady, and we don't even, like, it doesn't, even if you get to those heights, it doesn't become you. You aren't suddenly imbued with some, like, foreign spirit that, like, you shine gold and, like, everyone can identify you as that person now. (laughs) Like, you're still just the person you were before you did that. You have now just also done that. Like, yeah. 
And let's say, okay, hypothetically, you get published in the New Yorker, suddenly your body emanates a golden glow. You still mm-hmm. gotta go get gas. Like, you yeah. still gotta pick up your groceries mm-hmm. and, like, you still have to do all this other stuff. You might as well have hobbies that you actually enjoy. Yeah. Like, you can't have your whole sense of self cannot just be one thing. But as a teenager, I think that's really attractive, right? Like, yeah. I mean, Esther struggles with having a sense of self in, in many ways in, yeah. in the story. In, in some ways, part truly do too i think she just she's dissociative um but like yeah to like i think i think it's really attractive for teenagers to just be like i will be an olympic lady crew champion that Mm -hmm. will be who i am i will be accepted and legitimate that Mm -hmm. shall be um so it is written so it shall be done yeah like and and i get that because i i relate to that a lot like that searching for identity and things like Okay, so story time. Here's the thing about me. Mm-hmm. My first year of undergrad, I wore the same hat every single day. No, you didn't. Every si- yes, I did. Yes, I did. No. It was a normal hat. It wasn't like a fedora or something, thankfully. But it was just like the same cap every single day because I was in search of identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was, so I externalized it. Like You and the cap guy. Yeah, th- and that's not even a guy. That's not even like a kind of guy. Like, <laughs> the, the, it's it's like I'll have this as my identity, and it's intensely boring. It's not at all interesting. Like, there's no, it's not discussion worthy. Like, yeah, well, it's something you know, like. Well, that guy with the blue, what, what was it? Was it like a, it was like a what, brown was... cap? Like it, I, I had like a pin on it, you know? Like, are you it, in witness protection? Like, <laughs> you'd think. Like, you know, and, and then, and I kept spending my entire freshman year of college wondering why no one would have sex with me. Um, and it's like, oh my I wonder God. why, Ben. Like, Who can I wonder fathom why. this? Like, yeah, like, oh, you're on the improv team and you wear a hat all the time? Like, great. I have a serious did, did anyone ever notice the hat thing? Yeah. Yeah, people brought it up to me, and they were like, why would you do that? And I found it to be embarrassing, but then I would double down on doing it. as like, just because I want to, because it was a defense mechanism at that point. Like, yeah. Oh, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but there's a great quote from the book that actually, like, well, it's about Sylvia Plath. It's about Esther's, Esther's feelings about her virginity. Oh, here it is. Wow, I'm so good at this. Okay. Dope. Esther's feeling about her virginity by the end of the book. Okay. Also, this is, like, the real-life events that inspired this were, like, 1953. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that we can, I don't think we will ever properly fathom how different our yeah. lives would have been then. Yeah. Um, it had been such an enormous, it had been of such enormous importance to me for so long that my habit was to defend it at all costs. Like, mm-hmm. that's you in the hat. That's Esther yeah. and her virginity. Like, yeah. <laughs> Because that's how kids are. Like it's you're you're clinging constantly for just anything to make sense because suddenly you're thrown into the world and it just doesn't anymore. Like you know, not yeah. You don't have to have one thing to have a sense of self, kiddos. Yeah, yeah. Um. Like, uh, so this metaphor rocks because mm-hmm. it so it does such a phenomenal job of capturing this character, mm-hmm. um, and also it's inherently very pretty. Um, something of, and so I think I want to talk about a few ways 
first just ignoring the audience misinterpretation and reception mm. of mm. of the metaphor. I want to talk about a few ways, like now rereading this as an adult with the time to not get consumed and how good this metaphor is and like too yeah. identifying too hard with it. Mm. Like the ways that the craft ways that Sylvia Plath gives us clues to show us that like this is Esther's perspective um while still remaining always from esther's perspective it's Mm -hmm. it's an it's first person it's Mm -hmm. always in esther's head we never get a break from esther's head Mm -hmm. and that's part of why it's really good but Mm -hmm. part of how she makes the book overall and in particular esther's worldview works is she gives us enough clues elsewhere to see like esther is a tip of the iceberg like she's not necessarily understanding everything all of the time um, in the main tool that I think we should compliment Sylvia Plath for and how she did it is dialogue. Um, mm. She has just this these bits of dialogue um, that just show, like, I think dialogue is a great way to cheat. If you have a point of view character who is not going to accurately understand everything that's happening... I think dialogue is a great way. Literally, the point of view character has to hear dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Dialogue is a great way to indicate that other characters have a different worldview or have more going on, or like that there is a level that the point of view character may not notice and may not spend time observing. So, really punchy dialogue like this, um, I think, is is the go to tool for it. Um, I want to point to two really good examples of it. The first one is about. It's, it's in chapter three about um, her how her grandma cooked. And the later one is in a slightly later chapter, possibly chapter seven. I think it's chapter seven um, about something that her dad said to her mom when they first got married. Okay. So I just want to use these two as these two. And then one other thing as craft examples of like how to indicate that your point of view character has a worldview that is not like perfect the truth. Yeah, it's not complete. Yeah. Yeah. So this grandma one, um, just yeah. in general, Sylvia Plath's eye for like dialogue in this book is phenomenal. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So this grandma was, uh, it's not that we hadn't enough to eat at home. It's just that my grandmother always cooked economy joints and economy meatloafs and had the habit of saying the minute you lifted the first forkful to your mouth, I hope you enjoy that. It cost 40 41 cents a pound, which always made me feel I was somehow eating pennies instead of Sunday roast. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal dialogue on its own, right? Very yeah. funny. Yeah, um, it's a great just line. Yeah. Inherently yeah. interesting. Yeah. Esther's takeaway from this can be different than what we as readers are like, may spend the time to take away. Esther's yeah. takeaway is my grandma makes me feel poor, right? Yeah. Yeah. My takeaway is oh my god, what'd your grandma go through that she's, like, so obsessed with dollar signs? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, there's a lot more happening with the grandma that... I think this may be the only line of dialogue we get... Only moment, really, we get from the dialogue, from the grandma. Yeah. But, like, there's so much more happening with the grandma that, like, Esther may not notice, but I, as a reader, mm-hmm. like, include in that may yeah. be there. Exactly. Just through that moment itself. Like, yeah. In uh, just on the dialogue tip, it's great because it like it gives the character something to interpret. Like Mm -hmm. is that you know because of that they're able you're you're let into that their like perception on the world as a result of how they interpret something like a piece of dialogue like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like and, and that is just a great moment. Like you know, 
where you see this grandmother who is like you know maybe even trying to be kind in a certain way with that like saying like hey this costs 41 cents a pound I'm, i really hope you like this like you know i don't have a lot of money like yeah. she might be saying like yeah i'm trying to treat you yeah, i love you this exactly. is luxurious i hope you appreciate it because i worked yeah. really hard so that you could appreciate this meatloaf right yeah exactly like uh, it, it's it and just finding, you know, that, that disconnect is something else that's great. But yeah, what what's this other section that you wanna Okay, so this well. Yeah. This one I don't know if you got here. It's about the dad. The paragraph starts with Had it my own mother told me. Had it my own mother told me that as soon as she and my father left Reno on their honeymoon, my father said to her, Woo, that's a relief. Now we can stop pret- pretending and be ourselves. And from that day on my mother never had a minute's peace. Oh my god, this dialogue. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, man. Because <laughs> the mom would have gotten married in like the 20s or the thir- 1920s, 1930s. Like, yeah, something like that, yeah. The like, importance of getting married to a good man in that time yeah. is like your whole point of living. And then yeah. to like be leaving the, 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 the service. And turn around and he says that. Like, that's a horror movie right Yeah, there. it really is. Like, yeah, <laughs> j- just like, finally, now that I've trapped you. Um, it's, uh, yeah. What I think is fascinating here is the dialogue is, woo, that's a relief. Now we can stop pretending and be yeah. ourselves. The, the we is interesting, yeah. The we is fascinating. Like, yeah. I, I think, like, this men in this era were also like being very much their, their behavior was restricted differently mm-hmm. differently mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but their behavior was restricted and yeah and the fact that he assumed that she was also dancing a dance to get it out of the way yeah rather than actually believing and embodying all of the pressure for marriage mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. fascinating <laughs> yeah like just this like the, the this way in which cultural norms are, are are just so put forward as the like key thing to like uphold like like in that in the era um and, and the way that that just shows like you know it, it's almost like an admittance on his, his part in, in this just like it's it's interesting because it's one of those moments where that can be it's supposed to be relieving to both of them, right? Like, yeah. yeah the, but it, it clearly wasn't in, in some ways. Like, yeah. It's a fascinating moment that she, like, yeah. really moves fo- forward. For, like, Esther's yeah. moving. Like, this is not yeah. a long time that we draw maintain yeah. in this moment. Um, but what I think is really fascinating here is Esther's takeaway, again, is different than what mine as a reader can be, right? Esther's mm-hmm. takeaway is, like... Um, men shower women with stuff before he marries her but he uh the line before that um what he secretly wanted when the wedding service ended was for her to flatten out underneath his feet like mrs willard's kitchen mat Mm -hmm. right like esther's takeaway is like that her dad wanted her mom to just flatten out and be obedient Mm -hmm. and i think my takeaway is like oh no he thought he he didn't realize that what she wanted was you know exactly 
he thought that yeah. she was also just playing a game. <laughs> like, yeah, he he. What he wanted in that moment was for both of them to like. It, it's a it's a search for equality almost in that moment. Like, right? I think so, like, yeah. Or at least common ground, or at least it feels like that. Like, yeah. Yeah, like he just has not fathomed the degree to which Esther's mom, his wife, has internalized all of the social pressure that he's able to recognize as social pressure, a game you have to yeah. play. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, which is an advantage he gets from being a man, most likely. Like, it is... Yeah. He, yeah, but it's just, like... I think the takeaway... I think Esther's read of that is, like, oh, he wanted my mom to become obedient. Yeah. But yeah. my takeaway of that is, like, he didn't even realize... Like, he's not even thinking about yeah. how she is responding to social pressure. Like, he is yeah. not aware of where she's coming from. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just, like, transforming into a complete stranger in that moment almost like like because uh, of that difference on, on like where the pressure lies like yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. those are two phenomenal examples and they're done throughout of like dialogue that is inherently interesting but also mm-hmm. the point of view character is interpreting it maybe misinterpreting it interpreting it mm-hmm. differently than mm-hmm. i interpret it yeah um so all of that is like training us to give some space between Esther's worldview and what is necessarily reality, right? I think those are training yeah. us to like always approach what Esther is telling us, understanding yeah. that she's a character with a perspective, not the truth, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And with specifically with the fig tree metaphor, mm-hmm. literally the next page, mm-hmm. Esther walks back her own metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. So the fig tree metaphor is all I th- I'm sh- I can't decide which of these impressive identities I'm going to pursue and therefore mm-hmm. I am like sitting at the bottom of the fig tree and like starving to death. Within one page Esther says it occurs to me that my vision of the fig tree and all of the fat figs had that had withered and fall to the earth might well have arisen from the profound void of an empty stomach. Maybe I'm just hungry. <laughs> Like, within one page, Esther walks yeah. back her own worldview metaphor. Yeah. Like, the, this thing that is supposed to be, like, tying the care like, the, this tether for the character, uh, essentially, to at least the reader's understanding of them. And it's like, man, but also, I don't, I don't know. Like, yeah. it, it, just that feeling of just being a person and just being like, am I really depressed or am I just hungry? Because, once again... <laughs> I've been there. Like, good. Uh, <laughs> Not mutually <that>. exclusive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I wanted lunch. <laughs> I didn't want to kill myself, but yeah. Yeah, what's that? There's like been a meme going around of like, if you think everyone hates you, you probably need to sleep. If you think you hate everyone, you probably need to eat. Mm. Like, sometimes mm. it is that. <laughs> Yeah, it's that, that simple. Yeah, it is exactly. that simple sometimes. <laughs> like, uh, oh, I, if you I, hate yourself, shower. That's the third one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like That's sometimes the care and keeping of a human body is that easy, actually. Like, yeah, the the mental and the physical are not too far from each other, even if it feels like they are. Yeah, like. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I think um, craft-wise, there's so much to compliment in in this book but yeah what i i think is really stand out is like within the book it's such a clearly defined strong well-developed worldview mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. she 
leave space for the character herself to recognize this I may not be right about everything and mm-hmm. also uses craft techniques to let the reader clue in that the character may not be right even when the character thinks that she's right using yeah. I think most most obviously using lines of dialogue that the character interprets yeah. differently than I would mm-hmm. um so we can't talk about this episode without talking about how this metaphor has been decontextualized and gone viral okay. Okay. um yeah Ben, had you ever stumbled upon the victory metaphor before by any chance? I I mean, I feel like I have reading this. It's like, you know, I was on Tumblr when I was in early college as well. Like, it, you know, I, I ran and, you know, I that's when I wrote poetry. So, like, this Oof. definitely had to have crossed my dashboard at some point. So, like, yeah. Crossed <laughs> my dashboard. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it, it was viral in, in Tumblr, but also tons of other places. Like, yeah. this is just a like brainy quotes kind of thing yeah um and i think it's a, a disservice to the book to decon to take this quote out of context the way that it has been yeah um yeah because i i think this like people will post this quote and respond to it saying like that they really identify with this and it's great to identify with stuff but it's better mm-hmm. to identify with stuff and then crit- think critically about it afterwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, and, what are you identifying with here? Like, and, yeah, and without yeah. the context of you know knowing that Esther herself walks off, walks back from this metaphor, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that throughout Esther's like not necessarily the most reliable source, um, and then you know without the context of life experience to say like actually you don't need to be an Olympic rower versus a fancy editor like you can. Just keep going. Yeah. Like you'll you'll stumble upon something, and you can do this as a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Do, does this book end with um, Esther's suicide? Does that occur in this book, or no? So Esther, uh, no. That's about midway through. It's an attempt. Um, yeah. Okay. This book actually ends really optimistically. Um, okay. Okay. She. Yeah, pr- it's a pretty optimistic book, actually. Um, okay. <sighs> I think another issue with this being like compared, like considered the catcher in the rye for girls, mm-hmm. is like the first third of it, the the middle, most of it, mm-hmm. is an episode. Like it is not. <laughs> she is yeah. unwell, and it is about how unwell she is. Like that is yeah. what it is about. Yeah. Um, and. It's a huge bummer that, like, this is culturally considered, like, the literary classic book about a teenage girl, the only one, you know? Like, because it's like, we don't get to go on an adventure, we just have to have a psychotic break at home. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, oh yeah, you know the coming of age for a woman. You you go crazy and everyone's annoyed by it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's, yeah. Yes. But... But it, that's more like cultural. That's, that's a problem issues. with culture, not a problem with the book. Like, yeah, phenomenal like, book. Yeah, problem with yeah. culture for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's it ends pretty optimistically actually. Which okay. See, another thing I didn't know about this, given the discussion around this book. But yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, the discussion around this book is maybe rightfully immediately undercut. Like, the yeah. version I read when I was eighteen. I, like, hadn't done any research, hadn't really heard anything about it, like, picked it up kind of at random from a library, I think. Mm-hmm. And 
like it ends relative like there's a suicide attempt in the middle like just so you mm-hmm. know um mm-hmm. it's very very heavy um mm-hmm. it ends relatively optimistically mm-hmm. and then i turned the next page and i was like wow this is a pretty good book about how things will shape up sylvia plath committed suicide two months after this book <laughs> like what yeah, yeah. It was a heck of a bummer of a of yeah. a of a end note there, <laughs> of a postscript. <laughs> yeah, kind of under yeah. undercut Undercuts. some of the feelings from the end of the book, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, may, it makes you feel a little rose tinted. I get that. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, but yeah. um, yeah, the the but the the work itself it ends optimistically and. Mm-hmm. Um, Esther, I don't think the Esther at the end of the book would have the same worldview as the fig tree indicated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because no one does, right? Like, because the... hmm. What can you do as a writer, though? Like, if culture's just gonna make your personal life relevant to the book, like, if they won't let the book stand on its own, and if they're gonna decontextualize, like a morbid part of it or if mm-hmm. they're gonna um just have it try to represent everything to every female instead of like it being yeah. one of many yeah. like girl coming of age books mm-hmm. like i think the bell jar's cultural interpretation is not very relevant to the actual book yeah. the bell jar the, yeah ha- it, from my experience reading what i've read of it it's like oh okay e- everyone has cornhole has completely pigeonholed this into its you know into its author's life and tragic death and, and like that's the book uh, as you hear about it and it has nothing to do with the book itself like yeah i completely yeah. agree yeah mm. yeah um hell of a book okay so craft takeaways mm-hmm. uh, one define your character's worldview have them have yeah. a strong worldview don't mm-hmm. don't uh pussyfoot around it man like go ham with that worldview mm-hmm. That said, uh, give some of the ways that you can go ham with the character's worldview, but still give the audience clues that, like, they're not always right about everything. I think dialogue's a really rich way to do it, because how the character interprets dialogue can be different than how the reader would. Um, And also, like, the character themselves growing, changing their mind throughout the course of the book is also interesting. Is, Mm -hmm. like actually makes the worldview richer. It is actually, I think, more boring for the character mm-hmm. to come out the gate with a fully formed worldview and then never change it than it would mm-hmm. be if they, like, drop some worldview hits but maybe adapted it throughout. Yeah, it's not consistent from chapter to chapter. It doesn't have to be kind of thing. Like, it's naturalistic to have it move between space. Yeah, like, that, that's... Yeah, absolutely. So how would you recommend that, that people... In terms of worldview, like, what do you think are the things that craft-wise allow a, a writer to give a character worldview? Like, well, what within mm-hmm. our writing should we be trying to put in that, that creates worldview? Hmm. Like, what are the moments where you can drop it? Yeah, exactly. Like, what are the moments where you can drop it? What are, like, you, you mentioned dialogue as a way of, draw, uh, like, putting that in to allow the character to bounce off of something else. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, what, what's another, what, what are some more ways that we can kind of do this? Yeah. So, I'm big on, I want things to be put in scene. 
Mm-hmm. Even this fig tree mm-hmm. metaphor is actually relatively in scene. So what's mm-hmm. happening in this chapter, Esther is going on a date with this dude. They're like surrounded by a bunch of young, extremely competent people working at the UN. Yeah. And it's like a, they're in the gallery. They have to be quiet. And so it's a natural moment for a self-reflective, right? And it's mm-hmm. also a natural. She's looking at this young, like young Russian woman who's extremely competent. And she's comparing herself mm-hmm. to that young competent person finding all these faults in herself and then she does the metaphor right Mm -hmm. so it's a physically natural setting hey we love setting in this podcast setting for her to like start getting reflective right she's not doing Mm -hmm. this long drawn out metaphor in the middle of a like action sequence yeah yeah um so physically put some your character somewhere where they can be self-reflective i think it's worked really well here Mm mm-hmm Oh, uh, I did not have you read this this week, but the other thing that I toyed with having you read this week um, is from Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Um, Phenomenal novel. Um, Mm. That, I think, is a great alternative for how to do worldview. Um, So Detransition Baby has two point-of-view characters back and forth Mm. every chapter. Um, Mm. They are both trans women, and... Mm. I think that setup inherently like lets the reader see like, oh, Tori Peters is not writing the trans woman experience. She is writing about these two particular characters, right? Mm-hmm. So having mm-hmm. a character who can disagree with them or like see alternate, see perceive things mm-hmm. differently mm-hmm. for them from them, that two point of view character model worked really really well for Detransition Baby. Uh, okay, yeah, the creation of foils, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, the other, the moment of worldview that was like phenomenal in Detransition Baby, I hope that I'm not misquoting this too badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the point of view characters is at a fancy like event that they all had to get dressed up for. And she's looking at a cisgender woman and she's like talking about how like she believes like there can only like feminine women are always, feminine queer women are always in like a war to be like the most feminine looking. And then, like, the most makeup, the most over-the-top femininely. And they, like, can't just be at peace and hang out with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that's, like, obviously proved not universally true by the other characters around her, right? But she's, like, sitting in this... Like, that's a really... That is a heck of a worldview. And it's brought up Mm -hmm. really naturally because she's in a setting where she's dressed up nice. And she's looking at Mm -hmm. a woman who's also dressed up nice. Yeah, I, I think that both of those make a lot of sense uh, as ways to do this. Just, just and I and I ask just because worldview is such like a nebulous thing. Like uh, at least when I'm thinking about stuff like this, I, I'm always like trying to negotiate the barrier between person and character because mm-hmm. like characters can never be people because we're too complicated we can't be reduced we're given we don't have enough space on the page to ever create a person you know that that's that we can't simulate life uh in, in that way but we can approach it so and something like worldview is so close to personhood and like how mm-hmm. we like a, a person's worldview is, is a large part of their identity like it, we were talking about identity earlier it's not individual things but a large part of it is like how you interpret uh the events and, and circumstances you find yourself in 
Um, so it's just finding ways to make that reflective for a character and finding moments to naturally insert that it, it is just a, it, a very complex, a complex and interesting task uh, to undergo in writing. Like, yeah. Hugely. And I think it's pretty exciting when there's like, I don't, a lot of short stories are perfectly good, but they don't do that good of a job of establishing a character's worldview. Like, yeah. it's something that I'm really excited to see in, a, in, mm-hmm. in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think maybe this is a discussion for another day, but I also think mm-hmm. like stories themselves can have worldview, right? Yeah. If if the the hero always wins, if the the good the guy always gets the girl or whatever, like those are worldviews mm-hmm. that yeah. the story can have, even if the character doesn't articulate mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and that and that's interesting also because those worldviews almost don't. E- Sometimes that's not even intentional, right? Like mm-hmm. the, that that sort of worldview is where we enter the political almost because it's like that that's the inherent that's reflecting culture as it exists and the ways that like the author has uh, interpreted culture and that the way that they think story operates and it's and using that to become worldview for the piece itself. Like and I, I think you're right that that is like a whole other discussion too. Like because that's we should so get into that yeah we, we, when we read yeah we, we touched that a little bit when we were talking about i hate the internet like because that that definitely is a work with worldview but it's imbued into it and it's odd, like so much so that it's like direct like yeah mm-hmm. but yeah mm-hmm. we definitely should go into that more like like and how that works yeah yeah but yeah i think dude. the bell jar overall probably has does have a worldview it was like a mm-hmm. huge feminist awakening awakening for mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. lot of people in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s through mm-hmm. today um and it's i think it's kind of sad that just like what's it like to be a woman like was a feminist awakening you know like she's not yeah. esther's actually sexist like she's not a like feminist hero right but what she observes yeah. is just like people treat women bad and women feel a lot of pressure to look pretty and and their sense of value is about which man they catch as their husband you know like yeah the fact that that counts as feminism <laughs> yeah well we live on a bad planet but like yeah the we're gonna get there man we're gonna get it we're, there we're trying we're trying we're fighting <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, man. wait i do have uh, one other idea um mm-hmm. this will become relevant as you come upon what I'm calling the attempted date rape scene. Yes. Um, I think maybe the cultural worldview that Esther has uncritically accepted as her own is mm-hmm. that, like, she just, multiple times, she just wants to be an observer. She doesn't want to be a participant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the date rape scene in particular that night, she says, I'm just going to observe my female friend who's, I'm pl- the plus one of, and, and mm-hmm. you can't. You can't not uh, participate. Just yeah. inact like being passive is an is a choice as well, is and, an and it leads yeah. to, to uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, heck of a worldview. Yeah. The bell jar, huge yeah. bummer. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really very, funny very too. Good. Yeah. No. That that's the other thing. Like she's she's got some bangers in there as far as like joke lines go. Like, just to bring it up on that, like, there's a moment where she said, uh, where there's, like, a guy that she didn't want to go on a second date with, so she wrote him a letter and was like, 
I have to marry my high school sweetheart. Goodbye forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please don't ever stuff. contact me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was really delightful. And uh. even like, yeah, even like the high school sweetheart or whatever. He wasn't actually, a, like they started dating yeah. in college, but they knew each other yeah. from, that, back, from back home, the hometown mm-hmm. boy. Um He's supposed, like, he plot-wise causes, Esther uses him to create problems, but he could have been a nice guy, you know? Like, even Mm -hmm. I am like, this could have been a perfectly fine dude, like. Yeah, like, uh, and she even, like, points to that when she's talking about it there, right? Like, she she says, like, you know, oh, when I I see men, like, people from afar, I I become obsessed with them, but then once they're next to me, I I begin to see all the flaws, like, that, that, and he's, like, the prime example for that, like, yeah. Ben, I'm, like, so certain that Esther's closeted and doesn't realize it. Like, I, every book, I feel like every book mm-hmm. I've chosen, I've been like, Ben, this lady's a lesbian, but <laughs> I mean it this time. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, I, I don't think that that's an unfair read in the slightest to this book. Like, especially given the cultural context of the time and, like, how, like, that, that would have been a thought that for many people, if that thought begins to occur to you, you're like, no, we're just going to cram that down and we're going to pretend that we didn't think that. Like, yeah. Oh, push her down. Well, she just doesn't enjoy yeah. men. And it's hard to separate that from culturally men are bad. Like, men are <laughs> not enjoyable. Yeah. Like, culturally, they're what they yeah. do to you, what they represent to your life, the risks that are associated with them, mm-hmm. um, the pressure, the obsession that everyone else around you has about your relationship with men. Like, yeah, uh, I don't know. It's just hard to separate like culturally she is not able to enjoy men from like maybe she just wants to but does not actually sexually enjoy men like yeah mm. sounds reasonable to me like I, <laughs> I, the... uh what do you got ben uh, great book all right uh recommendation wise thing that's been bringing me joy um well last night uh, me and fran watched the movie spencer um How which it? oh it's good it's really oh, good like de- yeah definitely watch it it's cool like Kristen stewart kills it it is princess diana for those that don't know it, it is a story of a terrible christmas eve um and christmas to like christmas eve to boxing day experienced by princess diana with her children when she was still married to whichever one she was married to i don't remember but um I do not yeah. know much about the British monarchy. She, she's the one that I know. Like, she's the one that I've heard of. Like, it's yeah. our right as an American to only know about the prettily dressed lady from the British monarchy, you know? Yeah, like, I don't that, have to that, know this genealogy. <laughs> yeah, the the one that tragically passed. And, and just, yeah, it's, it's just a really good movie. You know, it, it's... You're getting, like, the... It, it's trying for the Oscar nods. It's uh, gorgeously shot. Um, lo- lots of really great uh, wide takes the- that I really love. Lots of big shots of lawns with like the big house looming in the distance, making it seem kind of oppressive and scary. And, and then like that intercut with almost documentary style moments of like harsh close up following Diana like down hallways and stuff like that while she's experiencing all this. Mm-hmm. It- it's it's really good. Yeah, I'm excited. I listened yeah. to. Um a podcast series on princess diana from the series from the you're wrong about podcast Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. i kind of like 
pre-game Spencer with this podcast. It's like five hours of content or however long it was. It was very long. Um, Yeah, so I'm really excited to watch Spencer. I just haven't uh, wanted to go to a movie theater with my local case rates. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we rented it. We 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 paid the twenty because you can rent it. You can rent it on Amazon for like twenty dollars, just the price of two movie tickets. So hey, that's what I would have paid. But also, I yeah, exactly. Go so I miss going I places. Yeah, yeah, it's not good right now. I'm it's not good it. at all. Yeah. Well, speaking of Kristen Stewart, then my recommendation mm-hmm. will be Happiest Season, uh, which Happiest is. Season. It is the it's on Hulu. Uh, it mm-hmm. came out last year. Uh, it, it it was the first uh, lesbian Christmas movie. But I just want to warn everybody: it's not like a holiday rom com. Like it's it's a drama, really. It's it's a yeah. dramedy. Um, yeah. So go, don't go in expecting it to be like you know like lawyer lady moves to the visits family in the small rural area and Santa's elf convinces her who's a baker convinces her to stay or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a dramedy. Um, but yeah. Kristen Stewart's really hot in it. The outfits are amazing. Um, it's quite funny. And I yeah. suspect that this episode will come out around the correct season for that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and, I, and I have seen this movie. It's very good. I also second this. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, 100%. It's, it's, it's really good. Aubrey, Stru- Aubrey Plaza's great in it. Like, um, mm-hmm. The girl from San Junipero. Is that, uh, is that Mackenzie Davis? Mackenzie Davis. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, 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 totally second on that. Also, um, it, it, since we're on the Kristen Stewart kick, I'll also say rewatch the Twilight movies. Those that shit's fun as hell. <laughs> that you, shit's know what? Great. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, Fran rewatched those recently. Super fun. They're hilarious. That you know, Taylor Lautner is just an absolute like terrible actor. Just has no idea what to do when he's on screen. It's Poor very guy. funny to watch him do stuff. Like yeah, that movie really is everybody is trapped in a story they don't want to tell like great actors great shooting great great soundtrack yeah honest to god best rewatch though last twilight movie she they give birth to a horrifying cg baby she like horrifying it's 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 a nightmare they rip everybody's head off in a big fight it's great (laughs) and then they do that like it was just a dream thing don't they do it like twice in a row yeah, I, I think it's only the once, but they reveal at the end that it was all just a vision. And it, it's a great, it's, uh, I think, what I love about that moment is that apparently it's a great redux of what happens in the book. Because in the book, what happens is that character that sees the future just goes up and touches the evil vampire and says, if we fight, we'll all die. And then there's no big fight at the end of the, at the end of the book. So in the movie, they yeah. just ta- have that take place in the mental verse so that they can do a big set piece at the end and then come this out of it, which I think up. is kind of good. Yeah. This adds up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you want to be a blockbuster. Yeah, exactly. It's a good set piece. They kill everybody. It's awesome. 100%. Like, yeah. <laughs> Universal. The kill rate here is... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, guess I recommend Twilight. Um, yeah. <laughs> if I'm you're still cut, listening... <laughs> yeah, you I'm going to play that part only. Vin yeah, recommends Twilight. Fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to cut all the parts where you're like... Because it's funny, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. like, Vin loves Twilight. It's a great romance. 
Yeah, do that. <laughs> if you go in and do a really difficult edit, I, I will have nothing but respect for that. Like, <laughs> to just make weird choppy sentences. I love tw- Twilight. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. you send me this audio, you don't know what I'll do with it. <laughs> oh man, I can only dream of what you'll do with it. <laughs> um. Okay. Wait. Hey, y'all. Uh, thanks for listening to the Good Writing Podcast. Um, yeah. If y'all could uh, drop us a five-star rating on Apple, that would be really cool. We'd really hey, appreciate please. that. If you were going to rate us, but it wasn't going to be for five stars, just mosey on along. Just mind yeah, keep, your business. Keep yeah, walking. It's, keep walking. Keep walking. Keep that <laughs> feedback to yourself. Um, yeah. We'll take it in the written feedback, but don't you mess up that star rating. Yeah, um, come on. Go ahead. Send us an email if you didn't like it. <laughs> or if you did. <laughs> goodwritingpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, you find us at goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. And we will be out with another episode Monday. I think we're doing it. We're doing it every Monday. Yeah, it's happening. It's been very consistent. Uh, you can, We've been doing a great job. Yeah, right. we have. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Wait, Ben, will you show me the hat? Oh.